0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice
1: over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
2: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
3: As you know on the show, we usually dig into one story each day. But there's just so much news happening right now that we thought we'd try something different and close out the week by talking about some of the big stories that are in the news now and will be in the days and weeks ahead. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the latest twists in the U.S. presidential campaign, an escalation in Russia's war against Ukraine and high-stakes diplomacy between the U.S. and China. Who better to sort all this out than my colleagues Roz Matheson in London, Craig Gordon in New York, and Nancy Cook here in Washington. And they'll also be hosting this podcast for several days later this month while I sneak off for a little summer vacation. Nancy, maybe we should start by talking about the U.S. presidential campaign. Joe Biden is going around selling his economic plan, and you'd think that would be a pretty good thing to sell.
0: Exactly. And it's basically an effort on the part of the White House to repackage their economic agenda, which they have passed the last two years, Amid, you know, fears of a recession falling a little bit, the inflation numbers getting better and basically to try to convince Americans that even though a majority of people still feel pretty bad about Biden's handling of the economy in particular, it's a way to try to convince them that actually there is an agenda here, both short term one and a long term one to transform the economy.
4: I knew we couldn't go back to the same failed policies when I ran. So I came into office determined to change the economic direction of this country, to move from trickle-down economics to what everyone on Wall Street Journal and Financial Times began to call Bidenomics. I didn't come up with the name.
0: And they're hoping that if they keep talking about it and they keep sending Pete Buttigieg to Michigan and, uh, you know, Vice President Harris out on the road, that eventually people will come around to their way of thinking on it.
3: And in an interview with Bloomberg, actually, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, talked about how the inflation fears have cooled down a little bit. For the United States, uh, growth is slowed, but our labor market continues to be quite strong. Um, I don't expect a recession. I, I think that we're on a good path to bringing inflation down. We
0: saw the latest inflation number drop a lot. I feel like the economic data is good right now, but Americans' perceptions of the broader economy are still not great. There was a poll in June by AP that showed that Joe Biden's approval rating on the economy was like in the 30s. Percentage wise, that's lower than his sort of longstanding approval rating of 41 percent, which is also not great. And so there's just been a real mismatch. And they've just had a really hard time, not so much like passing policy because they've passed a lot of sweeping policy that Republicans don't like, but the Democrats should like. It's more that they've just had a really big problem with their sales job.
3: Craig, how much of this do you think just has to do with doubts about Biden himself, the idea that the message is pretty good, but people have concerns about the messenger?
1: Yeah, I think it's largely that, that disconnect that Nancy just talked about in that poll. I guess I can't shake the feeling that people look at Joe Biden and he's an elderly gentleman and they sort of question whether he understands their problems. I could imagine a certain amount of voters look at a Joe Biden and he's he's up there a bit in years and saying I don't think he really understands what it's like to go to work and you know punch a clock or my wife's a teacher and the hours are getting cut or different things like that. So I do think the the message sort of like on paper I agree is quite strong. Unemployment's like three point six percent. If you want a job, you can probably find a job right now, but it is not translating into personal popularity for Biden, and that's a, it would be a very worrisome sign for the Democrats.
0: I also think that Trump has like a big stage presence, and Obama is a great orator. And so they both are like these big personalities that sort of have this movement-like popularity with Democrats and Republicans, or at least their bases. And- Joe Biden has been, I think Democrats would say, like a totally fine, competent president. He's gotten a lot a lot more done than people thought he would. But he just makes a lot of gaffes. And, you know, when he was asked about what he thought about Bidenomics by a reporter at the White House recently, he said it was fine. And this is supposed to be like the cornerstone of his 2024 election. So I just think that that is part of the problem, too.
3: Ross Biden has been spending quite a bit of time overseas, too, talking with his counterparts. How is he perceived by other leaders?
5: He's certainly seen by many leaders as someone that they can engage with, they can have a proper adult conversation with. You've seen that be on a much more even keel under the Biden administration. You see a desire to work together on a bunch of stuff, be it Russia's invasion of Ukraine and supporting Ukraine in taking a tougher stance on China on global issues like climate change. So certainly the atmosphere is friendlier, you'd have to say, and a bit more reliable, the sense the US is a more of a reliable partner. But equally, there there is concern about Joe Biden. He's arguably a more protectionist president than Donald Trump was. He's certainly taken a tougher line On China and and stuck to it. And so there's a concern about being pulled along by US foreign policy when it comes to China in particular. And so there are differences of opinion still. I guess that what happens now is those can be at least articulated in a slightly more conducive environment. But, you know, countries are really closely watching the build up to the U.S. election campaign. I mean, U.S. elections are always a really big deal for the rest of the world. And we keep saying each election is going to be the biggest one yet. I mean, 2024 is going to be hugely consequential for the rest of the world. And the big question now that countries want to know is, is it going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden again?
3: Well, so let's talk about that, because at the moment, it sure does look like it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Nancy, more news out of Trump world just this week, and not great for Trump, and yet, weirdly, great for Trump?
0: Yeah, there might be a third indictment for President Trump and the second one from special counsel Jack Smith. And this one would have to do with Trump's involvement in January sixth in that insurrection. And so we're waiting for those charges. But so far, the indictments have not hurt Trump politically. If anything, they have really caused Republican primary voters to coalesce around him. And, you know, what that means for the general election, I think, is a whole nother question. But right now, he has a lot of support among Republican voters.
1: Mostly what it tells me is that there's some very weird energy out there in the electorate right now. I think a lot of us who cover 2016... I didn't predict that Donald Trump would win. I know a lot of people say they did now, but a lot of us, you know, thought Hillary Clinton would kind of pull it out. And I guess I could sort of understand that. 2024, you're looking at potentially the Republican presidential nominee being indicted four different times. And uh, as we publish in Bloomberg News, you know, the calendar of his potential trials kind of interweaves within some of the primary dates in early 24 and mid-24. So you could have a person in a courtroom one day on the campaign stump the next. And yet, as I say, 36, 38 percent of the country seems prepared to make him the next president. That strikes me as kind of a primal scream, like there's something out there happening among people, but I do think there's a, a frustration with the choices. Many, many polls have shown people aren't all that excited to have Biden and Trump be the top of the ticket again in 24 as they were in 2020. And that is where I think some of this talk about a potential third party candidacy is getting a little bit of oxygen, much more than I would have thought. It always feels like kind of a non-starter. Americans are very hardwired to vote for the D or the R, the donkey or the elephant, the one their mother and father voted for and their grandmother and grandfather voted for. But when you have people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr.
2: I feel like I'm losing my country. I feel like my party has uh, gone off the rails. It's become the party of war.
1: Obviously, you know, a historic name in American politics. You've got this no labels movement with Senator Joe Manchin, former Utah Governor John Huntsman, sort of uh, playing footsie with the idea of being a third party ticket.
5: They can't win. Either side
3: can't win without the independent. Without that independent, that center left, center right, an independent
1: Republican, an independent
3: Democrat. If they have another option, then they're in trouble. Both parties in trouble, so they're going to have
1: to say. Boy, I tell you, as I say, I, I never would really think any of those people could win. But if I were the Democrats, I'd be very worried they could peel off just enough votes to prevent Joe Biden from winning. And there, that's the way Donald Trump gets back to the White House.
3: Roz, everything that Craig is saying kind of points to this big change in American politics over the last several years. The idea used to be that people voted their pocketbooks. That was the cliche. If you're doing well, you keep the person in office there. And if you're not, then you look elsewhere. But that all seems to have been kind of tossed aside.
5: Well, that's right. And that's the mystery again. If you're outside America trying to understand America right now, Craig was talking about the primal scream that's going on. I think the question, really, if you're outside America, is what the heck really is going to happen? Does Donald Trump have that truly lasting, deep, bench of support? Is he actually going to make it over the line? And if so, why? And then, of course, the big question of what that would mean going forward. But from the outside, trying to understand his appeal is is quite tricky. And to understand how deep and lasting it is. And that's why you get a lot of officials from different countries already going into the US and they're going outside Washington doing their own research. They're talking to ordinary Americans saying, can you explain to us why you feel what you feel? Uh, What's important to you when it's going to come to the 2024 election? What issues are going to matter to you? Why may you vote the way that you will? Because they're really trying to get their heads around uh, the prospect of Donald Trump getting enough traction to get back to the White
2: House.
3: Nancy, there is this difference that, as Craig was talking about, between the primary voters and the general election. And, of course, we're in the middle of the froth of the early season where everything seems possible. But if you look at that head-to-head matchup between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, you get kind of a different story in how Americans feel about the two candidates.
0: Yeah, I think that Democrats and people in the White House are very optimistic about running against Donald Trump. While he has this base of support of like 30 percent of Republican primary voters, he has had a hard time sort of expanding support beyond that. And Biden beat him in 2020. The midterms should have been much better for the Republicans, given how high inflation was at the time. And it wasn't. Uh, You know, the Democrats almost held on to the House. It didn't go great for Republicans, and I think that they're expecting that again. Polling also shows that independents, suburban people, women are very turned off by Trump at this point. And so I think that that will be something that we'll have to watch. I I know from the Trump campaign that they really feel like they're going to try to go after young voters. They're going to try to increase the share of African-Americans who vote for them and Hispanics. That's what they're targeting, because I think they know that suburban women is sort of a lost cause at this point. But it's just going to be very interesting to see, you know, these two people, if there's a rerun of 2020.
3: After the break, the fighting in Ukraine intensifies.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
3: We've been talking about domestic issues, but foreign policy is also a very big question in this campaign The war in Ukraine is ongoing. Roz, just this week, we've seen big developments in the war.
5: Well, that's right. I mean, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been going on for some weeks now, and they've made some inroads against the Russian positions, but it's really slow going. And the sense is, on the ground at least, this war probably has some way to run and that's leading to some some big moves by Russia, for example, um, big missile attacks on the southern city of Odessa, trying to take out Black Sea infrastructure and so on. And equally, more and more bolder attacks by Ukrainian supporters, at least. Uh, Ukraine doesn't claim these directly, but more overt attacks inside Russia, uh, drone attacks around the greater Moscow area and so on. And so you, you're really seeing a pickup in the air activity again the use of missiles and drones, because things are pretty bogged down on the ground. And the sense is that even with all the military equipment that's been coming in, and a lot of it's still to come, particularly from countries like the US and supporters in Europe, is that the war's going to be slow going for quite some time yet. Uh, and that raises the question, again, of what point do nations like the US start to push harder for Ukraine to agree to come to the table and have some kind of negotiated conversation with Russia on it? is Ukraine willing to do that? Of course, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, has said that he will not negotiate an inch of Ukrainian territory. Is he prepared at some point to sit down and talk? Uh, Is the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, prepared to do so? But as this goes on and on into, into the rest of this year, do the voices of the US and others become louder about the need to at least be prepared to have a conversation?
3: Craig, we're starting to see that bubble up. This has been an area where most Democrats and Republicans have agreed that support for Ukraine is important. On the far right, there has been this feeling that we should stop funding the war in Ukraine.
1: I've been surprised, actually, at how long voters and people talking to pollsters seem to have been hanging tough on the war in Ukraine. I know the support is slightly down in some of the more recent polls but right now I don't think Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell who's been a vocal supporter of military aid to Ukraine has paid any sort of price for that but these things don't last forever as people start to kind of tally up the cost Um, and we're into multi multi billions of dollars already could that money be better spent at home etc. I think it's something that Biden probably has to watch very carefully as he's out on the campaign trail and he's starting to think about these issues heading into 24. But you're right, most of the opposition inside the United States has come from pretty far right. Matt Gaetz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert all around a bill that would, you know, essentially cut off the aid. The Biden administration is sleepwalking our great country into a world war. And the American people are fed up and tired of the hard-earned tax dollars that they pay to our government being spent in foreign lands and foreign countries for foreign causes and foreign people. That's a pretty small number of people and even in a Republican Party that has gone pretty far to the right, they're even farther to the right than that. So I I think right now the opposition has been contained to a fairly small, you know, small but vocal group. But I feel like with every passing day, especially as the Ukraine counteroffensive seems to have bogged down a bit, you, you do feel like those questions are going to be starting to be asked more loudly inside the halls of Congress.
5: It was interesting that you did see some of that start to bubble up at the NATO summit that was held in Vilnius, Lithuania last week, a slight sense of public exasperation coming in. They've kept that really behind closed doors most of the time. But Zelensky, before he came to Vilnius, was quite vocal in his complaints about what he saw as slow walking, Ukraine's desire to join NATO. And in turn, you saw some countries, including the outgoing British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, saying, hang on, you could be a bit more grateful we've sent you a lot of military equipment, we've sent you loads of financial aid, we're doing everything we can and we don't really like being spoken to that way. And you saw that with some other countries also. So there is that slight sense of we're doing everything we can and possibly risking some fatigue. And so that's starting to creep up, not just in the US, but elsewhere in Europe also.
3: Nancy, do you think that that small number of people who are really pushing this skepticism about funding Ukraine and saying that money should be spent at home can start to have an influence and that it can grow, especially if it just keeps being repeated on the right?
0: So the war in Ukraine, I think, will continue and and become an even bigger thing among Republican primary voters. Donald Trump is talking about how he wants to settle the war in Ukraine in a day.
4: Let me just put it a nicer way. Uh, If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours.
0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was asked about this recently and did not commit to sort of giving more money to Ukraine in the future. He sort of dodged the question. So I think that the Republican candidates are definitely on the side of perhaps not supporting Ukraine at all or definitely not in the long run. And I think that once we hit the election and whoever's the Republican nominee is talking about this against Biden, it will be much more of a talking point because I think that the White House thinks that Biden's ability to hold together NATO and support the war in Ukraine and stand up to Putin are, are like assets and selling points and an example of like his longstanding foreign policy credentials and leadership on the world stage. And, and so I think that it will just come up naturally because it will be a contrast between the two parties.
3: Raz, another big development was that Russia pulled out of this very important grain deal.
5: Well, that's right. So this is a deal that was set up to ensure that Ukrainian grain, which is really important to the global market and particularly to countries in places like Africa, could continue to come out of the Black Sea ports, even with the war going on, so safe passage for ships. And it was negotiated between the UN, Russia, Ukraine and via Turkey. And that's been operating with some success Uh, until recently. Just in the last month or two, things have really slowed down and very few ships have been getting out. So essentially, it was on a slow crawl anyway. And now we've had Russia saying it wasn't going to renew the deal. And that means that ships can't be guaranteed safe passage at all. What we've been reporting is that Ukraine is saying, we'll find a way to get this done anyway. We're going to try and negotiate to get ships to come The reality is that without insurance, shippers aren't going to take that risk and certainly uh, they're not going to band together in a convoy. There's been talk before about getting naval ships to be escorts. That's never gone anywhere. Uh, And so what you're seeing is really an impact on the global grain market as a result. You're seeing increases in prices for things like wheat, for example, and the concern about the knock-on effect to supply in many countries. But there's not without risk also for Vladimir Putin in this because he can be blamed for doing this by these countries and he's been seeking to keep them on side over his war in Ukraine. So we're talking countries in Africa again and North Africa in particular. Uh, And if they turn their gaze to him, that's not particularly good for Russia. So it's probably in his interest at some point to come back to this deal, but not in the next couple of months at least.
3: When we come back, the US and China try to cool things off. Nancy, another country very top of mind always, of course, is China. And there's been a lot of back and forth between the U.S. and China, which really shows how important the U.S.-China relationship is to both nations' economies and really the, the world economy.
0: The U.S.-China relationship in the last year and a half got to be very poor and very, very tense. What has happened is that, you know, the U.S. is just trying to make it a little bit less frosty. And so they have sent Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was just there. John Kerry, who is a very key climate advisor, was there. And the purpose of these visits is really to try to talk about some key shared issues like climate change and and the economy and the supply chain and obviously national security. But it's also just to sort of Make sure that there's a dialogue between the U.S. and China again because our economies are so intertwined and there are such key national security questions that affect both countries like the war in Ukraine that I think that the Biden administration is really just trying to make sure we're talking to them.
3: Roz, Joe Biden came in talking really tough about China and she push back pretty hard. Now it seems like Biden thought maybe he pushed a little too hard. And because China's economy is in turmoil, it seems that Xi himself also has an incentive to kind of come back to the table.
5: Yeah, it's interesting seeing the way that Xi Jinping is talking about uh, both his own economy and the relationship with the US because his economy is in trouble. That's clear. There are slowdowns across the board. There's wobbles again in the property sector. And of course, for Xi Jinping, his hold on power is absolutely anchored in the view uh, amongst ordinary Chinese people that the Communist Party will deliver uh, stability and prosperity across the board. And so he really needs to get his economy moving again. And that's a really big incentive for him to open up China a bit more economically, to encourage investment, to come in, to show that he's supporting the private sector. And that involves conversations with the U.S., and perhaps encouraging Joe Biden, if possible, to loosen some of the penalties that he's put on China, but equally to sort of to not discourage American companies from going in to China and doing business. And so for Xi Jinping, the biggest imperative right now is that he needs to get his economy moving. And so you could really see a knock on effect as a result um, in terms of the, the outreach that China may do to the U.S.
1: Ross says something earlier in this session that when I heard her say it, it struck me, but she's absolutely right. Biden has been more protectionist than Donald Trump. And we all remember Donald Trump's trade war on China, but Biden has taken it to new levels and you know, even this latest uh, idea of sort of limiting the outbound investment into China. But again, Janet Yellen told Bloomberg News this week that this bill they're going to put forward or this idea is going to be very narrowly tailored, probably not start till 2024, only affect, you know, super like high security things like semiconductors, leaving alone the energy and biotech sectors. And it does really feel like Biden talked so tough that he kind of looked into the abyss a little bit and realized that the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy are just completely interconnected and might've been being too tough. And so you definitely feel like a little bit that they're kind of pulling the punch back, obviously sending all those very high level officials, even this one act that was meant to really, you know, crack down on investment in China is gonna be, sounds like a bit watered down. I think Joe Biden, again, heading into an election where the economy and Bidenomics are going to be front and center, he needs China. China needs the United States. And it went to kind of a bad place. And you do have a sense both countries are starting to try to reel it back. We'll see if they can. The one place that seems like they haven't done as good a job of reeling it back is on the military, sort of military to military communications. You know, we're flying all over the China Sea and so are they. And it always seems like, you know, we're, we're one plane bump away from a really, really bad situation. So I'm sure that's on the front of Biden's mind and trying to get some of those military to military connections reestablished and reestablished quickly.
3: And Nancy, in the U.S., that's a kind of delicate balance for any candidate that you need to talk tough on China because that's just sort of the expectation. And yet you also have to make sure that you're not being so out front that China takes that as an act of hostility, I guess.
0: Right. And I think that the rhetoric on Taiwan has really sort of hurt the Biden-G relationship quite a bit. Um, I was with Biden in Japan, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago where he sort of indicated that, yes, the U.S. potentially would send troops into Taiwan if China invaded them. You know, that really got China's backup. And so I think that these military things have, have just really, you know, hurt the
5: relationship as well.
3: And Roz, how does China view all of that tough talk? Obviously, the Chinese do the same thing back,
5: Well, certainly China has an appreciation of talking to your domestic audience because that's really what Xi Jinping and other senior officials are doing all the time. Everything they say is aimed at that domestic audience so they can see the need uh, for US politicians to also do that, particularly coming into the election cycle. So they're probably going to be a bit forgiving of some of that. The question is when the attacks are seen to be very personal and particularly about Xi Jinping directly. And that's a place that you just don't really go And Joe Biden's recent comment about Xi Jinping, where in the middle of talking, he suddenly essentially called Xi Jinping a dictator, that's the sort of thing that can really cause a problem in the relationship because you're coming directly for Xi Jinping, you're questioning his authority, you're questioning the way he governs his country, and that's really the no-fly zone probably for China. The rest of it they can overlook a bit, they can understand the imperative, but it's when they make personal remarks about their leader.
3: Well, we've touched on a bunch of news stories happening right now. We could go on for another couple of hours to try to even get our arms around everything else that's happening. So let me just ask each of you, what is a story that you're keeping a close eye on in the weeks and months ahead? Craig, I'll ask you first.
1: Yeah, not to be repetitive, but I am watching the third party movement closely. A third person who's been talking about that is Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who was you know, pretty popular in, in a pretty democratic state. He put out like an ad the other day that uh, Nancy Cook actually flagged it to us and it, it looks for all the world like a, a campaign announcement of a guy who might run for president. I've always been an underdog and people have always counted us out.
3: But every single time we've beaten the odds,
1: he looked at possibly running for president as a republican in 2024 took himself out of that race but you've got three pretty prominent politicians in you know the west virginia senator joe manchin former utah governor john huntsman who is a a kind of a heartthrob of of the moderates? Um, was our China ambassador for a bit, and then of course Larry Hogan there in Maryland, and they are they are doing everything you would do if you wanted to run for president. Does that mean they will? I don't know. Um, I know a lot of Democrats are kind of freaking out about it and are you know trying to side channel them to say, hey, what what are you doing? I don't think a lot of Donald Trump voters are going to necessarily go with any of the three of those gentlemen, Mansion Huntsman or Hogan, but a lot of moderates or even disaffected Democrats might, you know, might say, hey, let's give it something else a try this year. If any of them were to put together a ticket and run, I would argue a vote for that ticket is a vote for Donald Trump um, because it's essentially a vote against Joe Biden. Roz, how about you?
5: I'm actually watching the weather quite closely. We've got global heat waves. We've got very, very extremes of weather all around the world. And looking at the knock-on effect of that, I mean, there are political ramifications, obviously, but also there are economic ramifications. There are big impacts potentially on food supply, food prices, inflation. We're seeing signs of unrest in countries like Nigeria and Kenya, which are related very much to food prices uh, and food supply. And you can sort of see that may even feed into the Spanish election this weekend, where we could get uh, the emergence of quite a far right government from that election. And so just looking at the way that the weather is actually playing into politics and economics around the world, that's something I've very much got, dare I say, a weather eye on. (laughs) Nancy. I'm watching to see what happens with abortion in the US.
0: Uh, you know, Democrats really want to use uh, abortion rights as a very galvanizing force in 2024. Republican candidates are sort of shying away from saying that they would support a national abortion ban. Well, some of them are. But meanwhile, states are just passing this whole crazy patchwork of restrictions. And so the country's just really being divided into like two different countries on that issue. And And I think it's just going to continue.
3: Nancy, Roz, Craig, always great talking to you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Wes. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer and the producer of this episode is Catherine Fink, with additional production support from Sam Gabauer. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend.
1: Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Cheater, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.